I am so excited and beyond honored to always talk to Dr. Linda Roman, but today even more because there's so much going on in the world that we have so much to say and we're going to get it in as fast as we can because of any guests that I will ever have on this podcast. Dr. Roman is by far and away the most busy and her time is just special to be able to take it even 30 minutes out of her very busy day doing the amazing things that she does. So I'm so honored to have her here. Dr. Roman did her fellowship in gynecologic oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. And right now she serves as as the director of the division of gynecologic oncology at USC. And she's also the director of research and the fellowship program director there. And Dr. Roman is the co-director of the Lynn Cohen and Georgia Cord Preventive Care Clinic at USC Norris Cancer Center. And she, most importantly to me, is by far and away the most caring, real, unbelievably special um, women that I have ever known in my entire life. And the fact that on top of that, she is just brilliant. And when someone coined the word bedside manner, and they must have had you in mind, Linda, you are just this so nice just, of you. That makes you're day. like the whole person. It's you're you're so special. And I, I, I I'm gonna use that word a million times because it's the only word to truly describe you. I mean you are just the most special person I've I've really ever met. You are it's like you know you want to meet you meet someone who's so brilliant but yet they're you know they can't talk to their patients and you meet someone who's so wonderful at their bedside but maybe they're not the most brilliant doctor you're everything and you're you're never afraid to speak your mind you're never afraid to speak up and i have a feeling you've always been that way um i can't imagine you as a little girl being shy in the back of the room um, so actually what I really would love to have my very first question be, and then we can get into everything that's happening in the state of the world right now, both in the field of women's preventive care and cancers, and of course, just like literally what's happening in the world right now with COVID-19 and everything else. But what were you like? I've never been able to ask you this. What were you like as a young girl and then a young woman? <laughs> so I, um, when I was young, I was born to parents who were refugees um, from Hungary, refugees after World War II, who'd been very affected by the Holocaust. My my dad lost his whole family, and my mother was in a ghetto, and they all survived in Budapest, but um, certainly some family members died. And I think she she was like 13, 14 when the whole thing happened. And I think she felt extremely betrayed by her country. So when um, the Russians came in and it was clear what it was going to, life was going to be like under communism, um, she and her parents left her fiance and a huge family behind to leave, um, to start a different life, thinking they'd never see any of their family again. And my dad, who had nothing left, just picked up and, you know, left to start a different life and both ended up through complex mechanisms in New York City. And that's who I was born to. I, my grandparents were also had made, you know, joined my mother. So when I grew up, I actually learned Hungarian before English. And um, to be honest with you, when I was young, I was very shy and I think very childish. You know, I was very young. I was born December 30th. So I was always the youngest in the class. And it was it was actually to the point where um, my parents refused to teach my brother Hungarian because they were so convinced, you know, the fact that I 
learned Hungarian first and supposedly didn't know English was what kept me so quiet when I think in truth I was just very shy and scared. And um, Mm. so we switched over to English when I was five. And then I ultimately, when my father got his PhD in history, we moved to Connecticut and I grew up in Newtown, Connecticut. But what I think you're seeing and what ended up happening, you know, it's quite a heritage growing up with parents who've gone through this. And uh, my father was difficult, so, you know, with everything. So I think I learned early on that there was only so much they could handle. I have to handle stuff myself. And that also, I had to stand up for myself. I had to stand up for myself. I had a very, you know, difficult dad. And I, as far as, you know, he was um, hard on us and sometimes not always way too emotional. How about if I say that? So I had to learn to stand up for myself. And I think that's what you see. I think that's what you see. Yeah. That, that it was either I stand up for myself or I don't know if anything really would have happened, but I think psychologically I felt like he, he lost his sister and he had a problematic his twin sister. He had a problematic relationship with her and his mom and never got to resolve it. So I was the recipient of that. So to make a long story short, a lot of what you're talking about, you know, I also lucked out that I loved biology and I quickly found the right career. And the caretaker side was my mother, who was the world's best caretaker and had wonderful sense of positivity about her. Um, both my parents were very, very, very smart and very academic, so I grew up in that kind of household. So anyway, I you put it all together, and at some point, I just remember deciding, you know, that I could either live with fear, which is what I felt like when I realized what had happened to my family and how ugly the world could get, right? You either live with fear or else you just do what you can to control your own behavior and move forward. And I think that is the key as to what led me to becoming much more courageous and willing to speak my mind, but never forgetting how important it is at the end of the day, you know, that people are people no matter what, they're all actually very similar in their needs and just to care for people no matter what. And I I don't regret, I never, I think for all the difficulty growing up, good came of it. So, you know, so anyway, I, that's a long-winded are. answer, but there you go. <laughs> it's amazing. I never, I, you know, of all these years I've known you, I've never been able to ask that question, and that was an absolutely incredible answer. And I mean, I'm, I feel like I know you so much better. It was unbelievable, and I think it makes sense. I think that all of that, the compa- compassion and empathy, and everything that you know, all of your family history and your history absolutely makes you who you are, clearly, and your brilliance you know, coupled with your, um, your just your empathy makes you the most incredible doctor. How did you pick oncology and how did you pick gynecologic oncology and decide to work with women? Yeah, so actually it was very interesting because, you know, when I entered medical school, it was my goal. I always loved kids and I spent a lot of time when I was younger, you know, kids and animals. And I always spent a lot of time babysitting, and um, I worked as a camp counselor, and the kids always loved me, and, you know, and I, I, that was the idea, and I remember my father saying to me, you know, you really should go into oncology, that's the future, and I said, are you kidding? That's way too depressing. I couldn't, you never do that, you know, <laughs> and no way, you know, and 
And then in medical school, I did pediatrics, and guess what? The kids did not love me. It was when they were scared to death of me, and I'm like psychologically 100% could not handle that. And so I realized I'm way too emotional about this to do this. You know, you can't let your emotions be that raw when you're, you know, a physician. You're not helping anybody. So rapidly changed my mind. I then got um, drawn into obstetrics gynecology because um, it's a very – it's a unique balance of medicine and surgery, and I really like surgery, but I like the idea of the ongoing relationship. And to be honest, at the time for a woman, that was a way of entering surgery without getting decimated. It was at that time very hard for a woman to just pursue general surgery. And then I did a rotation at um, the Mass General Hospital in Boston in gynecology for the summer, you know, just exploring this interest. And without my knowledge, they put me on the G1 oncology service. So I'm like, that's not what I was expecting, but, you know, I'll go with it. And to my shock, I absolutely loved it. And I think what I came to realize, you know, I'd spent – I did another rotation at Sloan Kettering in G1 Oncology, and then when I went into residency, what I came to realize is that, number one, um, it's extremely challenging. Um, You have to really balance off medical knowledge with surgical knowledge. But also, you know, what I realized about obstetrics is everyone thinks everything's going to be perfect, and then when it isn't, it's beyond devastating, and you go from high expectations to devastation, in oncology, people come in thinking everything's going to be terrible, and sometimes it is, but often it isn't. So you start with low expectations, and you can kind of mm-hmm. often go up. And in a way, you know, that was easier on me than when people were like, you know, the only way you could you could either right. throw people's expectations or you disappoint them, right? And I also had right. a really hard time with obstetrics when things didn't go well. So I found that heartbreaking for the baby. So I was just somehow, you know, that's all how it happened. And once I made up my mind, I never looked back. That's amazing. And what do you see? I mean, we, you know, obviously you and I focus so much on ovarian cancer and Mm -hmm. this cancer that is just so difficult to understand and difficult to make, you know, headway in, in terms of prevention and what do you like what's your take on it in terms of you know describing it to the lay person and then bringing us up to speed on where we are in terms of the advancements we've made and in the preventive side and also in the um in you know women who have it in in treatment yeah so from the preventive side probably the biggest piece of knowledge Um, or as far as changing the thinking came when we came to realize that the vast majority of ovarian cancer actually doesn't start from the ovary. It starts from the end of the fallopian tube, you know, and so now we're Mm -hmm. looking at it very differently. Now, this also tells us that ultrasound, where you're really looking for ovarian masses, is not going to catch a little lesion in the fallopian tube. It it can spread very quickly once it forms because the fallopian tube is hollow. So, We've come to realize, you know, there are two key aspects of prevention. One is surgical, you know, that if women no longer want children, um, you know, rather than a tubal ligation, removing the fallopian tubes um, is very likely to have a very big, um, lead to a very big risk reduction in ovarian cancer. 
similarly, mm-hmm. when a woman is having a hysterectomy for other reasons and, you know, once the ovaries left in, it's now become routine to remove the fallopian tubes. So, and, you know, the studies to prove that this is going to have an impact are beginning beginning to just trickle, but it's going to take multiple years to prove what the impact is. But I think everyone is pretty certain this is going to make a difference down the road. So there's the basic surgical side, right? And then there's also, you know, is there any other screening test that could be done that might predict who's getting into trouble. And most people feel that that screening, any kind of screening test for ovarian cancer is going to have to be a blood test where you pick up the the alterations, particularly the genetic alterations that start to occur when a cancer is forming in the fallopian tubes. So there are a lot of companies out there working on, they're called liquid biopsies, working on identifying signatures in the blood that might indicate the development of a malignant lesion. And because, you know, this kind of thing, if you can imagine, if you use it for pancreatic cancer, could be very complicated unless it's highly predictive because, you know, what if you have an abnormal blood test but you have a normal scan? I mean, you can't justify taking out a whole pancreas. I mean, that is a huge thing to do, but taking out the ovaries and fallopian tubes in any woman who's done with childbearing is not the end of the world. So it doesn't have to be a perfect test as long as it's pretty predictive that there is going to be, you know, 80% likelihood of a serious issue down the road. I would guess a lot of women would say, do it, and I'll take hormones. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. You know, it, the the bar doesn't have to be as high when you're looking at a screening test for ovarian cancer as it might be for, like, stomach cancer or pancreatic cancer. So, and I've told, you know, the company, you know, at least two that have worked on this, that, you know, there's a unique opportunity with ovarian cancer for this very reason. So those are really the two areas that are under, you know, active practice and investigation. Um, is there any way to see yeah, the fallopian tubes? Is there any way to see the fallopian tubes? Like you see can see your them, ovaries you with an ultrasound? Yeah, like with an ultrasound yeah. you can see your, your ovaries. Is there any way to see them? I don't know the answer. Yeah, fallo- ultrasound is pretty useless. You know, there's been talk right. about possibly like doing some kind of lavage of the uterus with the idea that stuff from the fallopian tube may shed into the uterus and you may be able to capture some cells that way. But an actual scope that could pass into the fallopian tube, you know, from like through the cervix, the uterus to the fallopian tube, isn't something right. that's really available. Yeah, too up in there. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a pretty, I mean, it would definitely be a little bit of an invasive thing to do. But I think one of the big problems is you have to catch this very early on in the development. It's amazing how quickly it can spread to the abdomen from the time it actually starts. And it can be very small. So once it's out of the fallopian tubes, it's, you know, so is that what we're saying? Once it's out of the fallopian tubes and it's actually ovarian cancer. Yeah. 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 Right. Rapidly seeds. Mm -hmm. And I've had many cases where I look as a surgeon, I feel the fallopian tube, I look at it, it looks totally normal, but there's cancer all through the abdomen. But when the pathologist looks, they find something in the fallopian tube. But I would never, with my gross eye or with feel, be able to tell. 
It's amazing. Yeah. And that's why it's just so difficult. So amazing. Exactly. And that That's why years. you have to find something that is picks up, you know, the changes. You know, cancers do shed cells into the blood and DNA into the blood. And that's really the basis of the present. You, you hear about liquid biopsies all the time. Many companies are developing liquid mm-hmm. biopsies. And that's really the basis to try to find alterations in DNA that are very, very characteristic of cancer. Right. No. And what about on the treatment side? Have we had any major developments and changes in terms of treatment, let's say from 20 years ago till now? Well, definitely, without question, on the treatment side, the the data show very clearly that women with ovarian cancer are definitely living longer and longer. Definitely, you know, the number of years after diagnosis of metastatic ovarian cancer, without question, is um, far greater than it was 20 years ago. Um, what we have not made any impact on is the cure rate. And um, part of it is that it's very hard to secure when it's um, spread widely, which is usually the case, even though it's become much, we're much better at controlling it. So, and this is because as far as the control rate, we have lots and lots of new drugs that have surfaced, you know, in the last 20 years. Taxol pretty much got its approval a little bit more than 20 years ago now, but, you know, around that time. And since that time, a lot of other drugs, many of which are very tolerable, have come on the market. And, you know, initially chemotherapy drugs, but there have also been what we call targeted therapy or anti-angiogenesis therapy that's very useful in ovarian cancer. With the new drugs that I, I think everyone's hearing about, the oral drugs, the PARP inhibitors, um, mm-hmm. will work very well in ovarian cancer that has certain alterations in it. It's not for everyone, but depending on the study, about a third, sometimes even up to 40% of cases will have alterations in the tumor that make the tumor unable to repair certain DNA damage. So the use of these drugs, it kind of exploits that deficiency in the tumor. And these drugs can be very effective in that group of patients, you know, whose tumors have it. And there's a test that we can do that will test the tumor that will tell us who's going to benefit from those drugs and, you know, who is much less likely to benefit from those drugs. So that's one of our Mm -hmm. first biomarkers, right? It's always nice when we can test Mm -hmm. the tumor to kind of tell us, help guide us. And that's really the only test that so far has merit, even though there's lots of claims. But the Mm -hmm. only test that's really been data proven um, to have impact on, you know, that helps select treatment reliably is this one. It's called, you know, homozygous repair deficiency. So, you know, that has been probably our most recent development. There's a lot of work ongoing now regarding the role of immune therapy. Does it work? And the answer is yes, sometimes, but not as commonly as other cancers. Should it be mixed with some other agent to help it work better. Um, And then the newest iteration of immune therapy is, you know, what we call T-cell therapy, where rather than, so, so the classic immune therapy that you see advertised on TV all the time, Really how it works is it it interferes with the ability of cancer to hide from the immune system. Cancers, many cancers can camouflage themselves. 
so the immune system doesn't see them. And what this does is it interferes. All of a sudden, it exposes the cancer, and there's also some stimulation of the immune system that happens as well concurrently. But not all cancers use this mechanism. The T-cell therapies tend to work. It's a much more aggressive maneuver where you actually prepare you manipulate the potent fighters of the immune system, the T cells, to actually recognize and attack the tumor. And, you know, you give the T cells back and you give drugs with them that stimulate part of the immune system, but then also suppress the part of the immune system that sometimes gets in the way of a, you know, proper immune response. I mean, the immune system is extraordinarily complicated. And so, you know, it's not you have to literally manipulate it sometimes to do what you want. And cancer has evolved with us in the immune system. While I'm not saying it has no role against cancer, it definitely does, but it's not particularly effective. And it, what we're trying to do is kind of um, program it to um, learn to fight cancer better. But this is an evolving concept, and the T-cell therapies um, have worked very well in the blood malignancies, particularly lymphoma, and now we're trying to see about can we get them to work against the solid tumors, including ovarian mm -hmm. cancer. I feel I think of it as like massaging it, like massaging the immune system to work against ovarian yeah. cancer. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're trying to like wake it up, you know, kind of trying to educate it and manipulate it, you know, kind of... right do for it what it somehow can't, you know, cancer is a very wily ending. You know, again, it evolved with us, right? And it's right, like it right. knows all our tricks. I mean, I don't, I assume right. this was incorporated in this as a population control measure, right? I, I mean, why else can our body do this, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, right. so, you know, like, you know, all, all kinds yeah. of things have are part of our life that hurt us and look at this pandemic, right? And yeah, we got to control the population, I assume, and when you look at, you know, evolution. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. yeah, but it makes it a very, very tough enemy because it knows our secrets. Yeah, you know. And so speaking of the pandemic, how is it right now with, you know, immunocompromised cancer patients? What is the feeling right now in, yeah. you know, with the yeah. women you're working with? I mean, how is that in the trenches, yeah. I guess, so to speak? Well, it certainly invoked a lot of fear. Um, you know, the, to yeah. answer your question, I think that, um, you know, the preliminary studies have shown overall that patients with cancer are more likely, which is not shocking, are more likely to die from COVID than others. And partly because if you're already ill and you get pneumonia, which is what COVID does, your right. reserves are down and your ability to fight pneumonia is much less. I mean, pneumonia is a very common cause of death of older patients, period. And it's because right. they, you know, they're already, their reserves are down. But in reality, um, the truth is that um, in no way, you know, we, so we've continued all the cancer care here because, you know, we're fighting a bigger enemy than COVID. We've made some adjustments um, when the data allows for options to try to avoid doing things that might mean a long ICU stay because we're trying to protect patients. And we never sure. know how available the ICUs are going to be with everything that's going on. But for the mm -hmm. most part, we've continued chemo, we've continued cancer care, and at least the patients I've seen have done very well. I know that, you know, of a few patients 
within the cancer centers that have tested positive, you know, in the area, all of whom have done fine. But the big, you know, obviously, if you actually get COVID and you get ill and you can't get your chemotherapy because you're too sick, that could be a big problem, even if you survive the COVID. Right. Right. So, you know, definitely cancer patients are more vulnerable population and we're doing everything we can to keep them safe. And, you know, we don't, we'd really prefer they not be the ones to catch the disease. And I think we've been doing very well. I mean, they're very likely to try to follow the rules and it's worked. I definitely think it's worked. Yeah. I mean, I can think back to even when my mom was really sick and she was so stringent about just keeping, you know, sickness away in general. Obviously, there was no pandemic at the time. So I would, I would think that most women, you know, people fighting cancer are, that's already part of their sort of routine. Um, But I would, you know, assume they would kick it into high gear. But of course, you know, this has been unprecedented. And, you know, it's very, it came on with, you know, nobody knew. So before we even knew about it, we got a lot of information all over the place at the beginning, partly because I don't think we were getting the information from China, you know, necessarily. It wasn't, you know, we weren't, we were getting hints, but for what a multitude of reasons, we weren't really getting the information we needed. Um, it was a very complex situation, and there are many, many reasons for that. But the bottom line is, we didn't have the information. We were doing, you know, it's always problematic when you make decisions with hints and speculation. And, and you know, in, in medicine, they teach you get the data first, be sure the data is right, you know. And then make your decisions, you know, and despite the popular trend nowadays, you know, that can you believe the news and blah, 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 the data's there, you know, you just Mm got to, you know, use your critical mind to assess it and react to it, not based on your emotions and not based on wishful thinking, you know, or anger or whatever the million emotions are, but right, you have to just look at the data and make solid conclusions and that's how you're going to get make the best decisions. So, yeah. um, you know, so it's been, as the information has come in more and more and more, what we thought we were dealing with at the beginning and what we realized we're dealing with has turned out to be very different. Yeah. And, um, you know, the other concern with cancer patients is that immune therapy, there's been concern since a lot of the healthier people, in other words, you know, people who've died of COVID where you're quite taken aback that they've died, it seems to be because of, you know, their immune system's over responding and creating enormous damage. And there's been concern that might immune therapy make this more likely to happen, right? And, you know, because that's kind of how it works. It's stimulating the immune system. And I could understand what the concern's about, but I don't think we have in any way been able to prove that that's really the case. So we have not stopped immune therapy. Immune therapy. Okay. That's interesting. On an, a, at the beginning of the conversation before we started, you and I were talking about, you know, the country opening up and how we have to, we can't, you know, all stay locked in our homes forever, but how it, you know, we have to do it responsibly and how different states are doing it differently. Um, one of the things I've been talking to different people about and friends of mine is, you know, how many people have not gone to the doctor in the last three months um, and missed checkups. And in particular, relevant to this conversation, women who haven't seen their gynecologist um, right. or haven't had their mammograms. And, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And, and you know, going in to see, you know, 
their doctors and how long do you push it off or do you go in or, you know, where it's located and depending where you live, is it, is it safe? Yeah. And how many people yeah. are in there? You know, this is a question people have been asking me because they think I'm some sort of expert, but <laughs> you know, this, you know, and my answer is I'm not a doctor, but you know, I don't know. And, and, you know, and I'm always yeah. very clear on that. You know, I am, I am not a gynecologist. I just raise money for them, but you know, this, this, to me, this is a huge issue. You know, it's now we're in our fourth month of, you know, for a long time, you couldn't even go see the doctor unless it was an emergency. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. my kids, teeth are totally four months behind with the orthodontist, but that's, that's fine. But, you know, a gynecologic visit is different and certainly a mammogram is different. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, it made perfect sense when this whole thing blew up not to go in because we were very much in the midst of an unknown. And I cannot emphasize enough how we were not as a medical community prepared and how much distress there was from the lack of information that was coming from, you know, um, the organizations, you know, the national government that really pandemic control, this is really not that the states don't have to make decisions based on what's happening there. But you know, there's a reason we have a national government and so many agencies that are when it comes to pandemic, it's a national security issue that you hope that you're going to get guidance Mm -hmm. from, but it wasn't, it was extremely problematic what was happening as far as communication and uh, it became almost like the whole thing became politicized rather than data driven. Um, But so we were a mess. We did not have adequate equipment. Um, I think there was quite a bit of indication that this, uh, we were at threat of a pandemic, but it's pretty clear that it was not being taken seriously. There was no stockpiling. There was no preparation. It just blew on us very quickly and we were woefully unprepared. And I think it made me feel like, you know, we were waiting for the blitz. We knew we were in danger. We knew a blitz might happen. And we all were just like hunkering down, waiting to see what would happen. So to go to see a doctor under those conditions would have been a bad idea. But a lot changed. You know, we now do have, you know, much more access to testing. Most hospitals, you know, test everyone who gets admitted or who's going to surgery um, we have much more protective gear. We have definitely more knowledge about this virus, you know, and what happens and who's vulnerable. So most hospitals have opened up operations, including us here. And I wouldn't hesitate at this point to go because, you know what, Amy, this, I mean, I'm like everyone else, you never know. And I know people love to prognosticate and whatnot. I'm pretty optimistic we're going to get a vaccine. I hope it's sooner rather than later, but I truly don't know. There's a very real possibility this is going to be our world through, you know, for a while longer. And how right. long do you want to put these things off? It's, you know, it's, I don't know that it's a big deal to put things off three months, but I think at some point, right. do you really want to put them off a year, right? So on the right, other hand, right. I myself, I never stopped coming to work. And I must say at the beginning – it was a little bit of a surreal experience, but maybe because mm-hmm. I've been doing it every day and I see all the safety measures and we have been very, mm-hmm. very effective here at preventing issues. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that I'm very, I've told my friends, you know, come on, it's, it's fine. So like our service, mm-hmm. we've done some telemedicine, but we have resumed in pay, you know, the in-person, you know, how do you do a pelvic exam with telemedicine, right? We've resumed. Um, yeah. 
the visits. And uh, honestly, I, I much more peace about that than I am doing some other things that are permissible today because I kind of feel this situation here is tried and true and we've been operating and nothing terrible has happened at all. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I would say I think at this point, physicians' offices for the most part, you know, those that are open have now prepared themselves to keep people safe. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 I mean, that's my gut reaction too at this point. And at Mm -hmm. this point, especially in big, especially in, you know, big cities, are you optimistic about, um, about the future of gynecologic oncology, even during times like this? You know, I have to say gynecologic oncology has always been a big challenge, you know, for just the overall lack of, you know, there's so much competition for resources, right? And it's been hard to get both national attention, adequate advocacy for a multitude of reasons. But I have to say, I mean, you know, you know that this has been like one of my driving forces, what can we do? Because I do think that when you, you know, COVID, everyone's focusing on it and you know what's going to happen, we are going to come up with solutions. If you can really focus intently, good happens. And I am seeing you and others like you are stepping up and with some good luck, you know, we've gotten some really powerful people um, paying attention. Mm -hmm. You you know, we're working on a platform trial and we have quite a bit of, you know, backing Mm -hmm. And, you know, a platform trial is just a much more nimble, fast-acting trial, and it it highlights resources because, you know what, Amy, Mm -hmm. the answers are there. I'm sure of it. I'm sure that we will make very significant headway if we can just get some great minds to focus on this disease. And we are definite, and you know, we're also trickle down. We're benefiting from knowledge in other cancers as well. It turns out the cancers have a fair amount in common with each other. So my answer is, you know, I can't always say I have hope for (laughs) the way people carry on, but I definitely have hope for the future of gynecologic oncology. Linda, thank you so much. Your, Your expertise, your optimism, your brilliance, your kindness, just overwhelming and I am so honored to know you. I'm so honored that you pick up the phone when I call you and that you answer my text messages, which often have nothing to do with gynecological oncology (laughs) advice on other things. But I'm just so happy that you're in my life personally and that you um, spent this time giving information to everybody who hopefully will listen to this. I'm just thank you so much for everything. I just love you and I'm so appreciative to have you in my life. Thank you so much.